All right, 1 Timothy chapter number 3, 1 Timothy chapter number 3, we'll continue our study tonight. I, uh, I am not going to keep you long, maybe quarter after at the most, but I would like to try to get through this chapter, that is my hope, but I'm not going to get in a hurry. I'm going to try not to get bogged down as well, run too many rabbit trails, I'd My goal is to stay on track, but there is a lot of good stuff here in this chapter that's talking about the expectations of a bishop. And before we read this, let me remind you that the pastor is supposed to be an example to the flock. And so many of the qualities that make a pastor an effective pastor are the same qualities that God would want every Christian to to demonstrate and to incorporate in their walk with the Lord. And so don't just think that, oh, this isn't for me, this is about the pastor. These are qualities that everyone ought to have if we're going to have an effective testimony, an effective ministry to the lost. Verse number one, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved... Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus." If you would also turn to Titus chapter number one, just a few pages over to your right, Titus chapter number one, and while you're turning there, I'd like to comment that the office of the pastor, the bishop, and the office of the deacon, these are the only two biblical offices in a church. I mean, you will find different uh, positions of expediency. There are some churches that don't have deacons, they have trustees. And typically what you find that is you find a startup church or a church that doesn't have people maybe that are deacon material, but they still need some trustees, some help to make decisions, financial decisions, to have somebody on the name of the nonprofit corporation or organization. It's just a matter of expediency. But you don't find the office of a trustee in the Bible. Uh, in the religious world, you have bishops and that are a higher a hierarchy, a bishop that is 
uh, above a pastor. You have cardinals and you have popes, as uh, Sister talked about growing up in Catholicism and archbishops and all of these different offices and positions, but all of those are extra-biblical. Biblically speaking, you only have pastors and deacons. And so that's important to remember. In Titus chapter number one, uh, yeah, Titus chapter one and uh, verse number five says, for this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city. As we saw last week, the elder, the bishop, and the pastor is all talking about the same thing, just a different aspect of it. As a reminder and review, the The office is the bishop, the function is the pastor, and the person, the quality of the person, is a reference to the term elder. But all of these are used synonymously in the New Testament. So Paul says to Titus that uh, you should set some things in order that are needful at the church in Crete and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. I had a conversation with a preacher, we talked about it on the radio recently, about uh, the, uh, the, just the concept of churches merging as opposed to splitting. We've seen a, a lot of things happen in the last 75 years. There have been church splits and church plants and startup churches, and you know, you look around in our community, and there are, and I believe this with all of my heart. There are way too many like-minded churches in our community that most of them are struggling with a handful of people. They're struggling to pay their bills. They're struggling to find a pastor and to keep a pastor. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that I have the answer to all of that. I'm just saying that in many cases, it wasn't the way that God wanted it to be. You've got a lot of churches that are just trying to keep things going because they don't want to quit, they don't want to walk away from a building, and everything revolves around heritage and family and nostalgia rather than the effectiveness of the work of God. Brothers and sisters, we have a great heritage here at Temple Baptist Church. We have had, God has blessed us with great stability as Brother Ben preached a couple weeks ago. I mean, you have had two pastors in over 50 years. You've had assistant pastors that have been here close to 50 years. You've had stability in leadership and ministry. You've got people all around this congregation that have been here for 30, 40, 50 years faithfully serving the Lord. Great history, great heritage, Don't ever view Temple Baptist Church from the eyes of nostalgia and heritage. View it as a church that's the body of Christ. And the most important thing is that we are effectively being the body of Christ. We've got to look at what we are doing. Are we doing it to be effective in our community? Not just for reaching souls. That's a certainly a major part of why we're here is to evangelize this community. But we're also here to minister, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever rest on your laurels, so to speak, 
and, and, and hide behind the collective identity of a church. Oh, yeah, we're, we're a soul-winning church. We're getting the gospel out. If you're not getting the gospel out, and you're just saying, well, the preacher's doing it, and, you know, Brother Sharp's doing it. We've got a handful of people that are doing it. You need to be doing it as well. Because it's not about our collective identity. It's about functioning the way that God has established the church to function, being effective. It's always important that we remember that. Nostalgia is wonderful. History and heritage and all of the memories that we have, but don't try to keep these doors open just because we don't want to let Brother Wilson or Brother Pennell down. Don't keep these doors open. Listen, if we go another 20, 30, 40 years before Jesus comes, don't try to keep the doors open because of Brother Mitchell or Brother Robinson or Brother TV Power or Brother James. Don't ever view it that way. Because when you start thinking about it in that light, the church will begin to lose its effectiveness. We've lost our true vision. And without a vision, the people will perish. So always remember that. These things, uh, verse number six in Titus uh, chapter one, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop, notice there, ordain elders, and then he says, for a bishop must be blameless, once again, synonymous, you know, different terms for the same person, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Boy, there's a lot in that that's similar to 1 Timothy 3. If you go back to 1 Timothy 3, a lot similar, but obviously Paul is saying for this elder, this bishop, this pastor to be effective, he's going to have to convince the gainsayers with Bible doctrine, not with entertainment, not with being cool, not with being entertaining, not with being relatable to the culture, so to speak. I think that a pastor ought to be a caring person over the flock, but he's got to be a man of the book. He's got to be a man of God, not just a man of the people. You can't be both at all times. Now, if you are men and women of God, and you have a pastor that's a man and a woman, that was a slip, okay? <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. How do I say this? If you are a man or woman of God and you have a pastor who is a man of God and you're following God, let me tell you something. You're going to have the unity that we desire. You're going to have the sweet fellowship. But you know what? That is so rare in churches today. It is so common for pastors who are truly men of God that they're trying to lead their people into a right relationship with God. And it's like they're pulling a 5,000 pound weight, a bunch of people that don't wanna go, they don't wanna change, they don't wanna follow their pastor. 
and then you got the church down on the other block that you've got the people who have a heart for God and they want to serve the Lord and they've got a preacher up there that's trying to take the church down the wrong path of, wrong, uh, of worldliness and the contemporary movement and trying to be cool and relatable and all of that. You have problems. And in so many churches have this, they either have a tug of war between the pastor and the people or they have this coldness you know, there's, there are churches that they don't, they don't run a preacher out, but they're, they'll sure freeze them out. They'll freeze them out. We ain't moving. We ain't budging. We were here before you. And finally, the preacher gets tired of beating his head up against the brick wall because he feels like he's wasting his time. And so he just ends up moving on. These are not the way. This is not what the Bible is talking about as far as the way that a church ought to be. And so let me pick up where I left off for the next 15, 20 minutes here in 1 Timothy chapter number 3. We talked about that in verse number 2 about the bishop being the husband of one wife. And we talked about a little bit of the controversy and what it's really saying and what it's not saying. But notice here it says the next word in verse number 2, after the husband of one wife, you find that word vigilant. Vigilant means that the pastor is watchful, he's circumspect, he sees dangers and trends that would eventually hurt God's people. You know, there are trends in modern Christianity today that in and of themselves, they're not sinful or wrong. And yet there are some trends that I'm just going to tell you right up front Right now, as by the grace of God, we're just not going there. There are some things, if you look in the pew back right in front of you, you find these wonderful things that we call hymnals. I know what you were probably thinking. You thought I was going to say tithe envelopes. <laughs> now, I'm not that preacher. <laughs> you find hymnals, a book that we sing out of, and I think that they're wonderful things, and I don't have any desire to move away from the hymnals. As I said last week, we incorporate a screen up here in PowerPoint for uh, effectiveness in some of our preaching and teaching. That's newfangled, so to speak, but that doesn't mean the way that we use it is what matters more than the fact that we're using it. Nothing wrong with employing some new modern things. You know, every now and then, if there's a hymn that we want to sing and it's not in our published hymnal, there's nothing wrong with putting that hymn up on the screen so that we can sing it together. But many churches go to nothing but that screen. And I personally believe that that's a trend that's just going to lead the next generation closer and closer to that contemporary Christian music movement. If nothing else, it certainly makes it easier for the next pastor who's maybe a younger guy and he doesn't have the same resolve. He hasn't seen the trends that the old preacher, the old dinosaur has seen in his lifetime. Maybe he is young and he, doesn't, he hasn't yet developed that spiritual discernment as a pastor to, you know, sometimes the wolf is not at the door. Sometimes the wolf is 
over there, way over there on the, the ridge or the hillside, and he's over there just laying down, licking his chops until he gets an opportunity to attack the sheep. And the pastor who is wise, he recognizes those trends and he's not going to let that wolf, I mean, listen, I don't want him at the door, but I don't even like him being up on the hillside drooling over the flock. I'd just as soon go out there and kill him up there on the ridge than to wait and kill him when he comes in the door. Isn't that what a pastor does? Kills the wolf? There are certainly wolves in sheep's clothing that we have to know and understand. And sometimes the sheep aren't able to discern that. But if you've got a shepherd, a real shepherd, with a pastor's heart and with a pastor's experience, he has a good chance of maybe recognizing those harmful trends. He's got to be vigilant in order to protect God's people. The job of the pastor is to feed, lead, and protect. That's what a shepherd does for a flock, and that's what a pastor is supposed to do for a church. The next word in verse number two is he's supposed to be sober. That is not talking about that he doesn't get drunk. I understand we talk about sobriety and being sober, but the word means that he is serious-minded. He speaks uh, of seriousness and uh, he has some good wits and mental judgment. You know, when you're not sober, you don't have good mental judgment. And the man of God, the pastor, needs to be sober. The next phrase says that he's of good behavior. Hey, you want to know what good behavior means? Are you ready for this? It means that he doesn't behave bad. How's that? profound. You can quote me on that. That's what it means in the Greek. That's what it means in the Hebrew and in Latin and Swahili and any other language of good behavior means exactly what he says. He doesn't behave bad. And it also means that he behaves in some good ways. It says here that he should be given to hospitality given to hospitality. Hospitality is a multifaceted type of ministry. And there are different ways in order to administer hospitality. Uh, sometimes it means that you have somebody over at your home for a meal. Sometimes it means that you take someone to a restaurant for a meal. But it doesn't always mean fellowship or entertaining what hospitality means is that you have a heart to take care of people. Sometimes we'll have visitors that come in, maybe a visiting preacher or missionary, and we didn't invite them in. They didn't present their work. We're not giving them a love offering, but more often than not, if there's somebody here that sometimes God will lay it on our heart and we will do something to take care of their needs, take them out to eat, give them a meal, provide a need, be sensitive to some people's needs. Sometimes it's just people have an emotional need. They just need some love and they just need some acceptance. I know as a pastor, a lot of times it's just, hey, somebody came in, I saw that they were a little bit down and out. They just kind of, you know how it is. You say, hey, you had a bad day. You know what I like to do? I like to try to cheer them up. 
I try to give them some love and attention, cut up with them every now and then. Listen, if you've ever had, most of y'all know, if you've ever had been in the hospital or had a surgery, you know that you don't have a pastor that follows the ministerial guidelines for hospital visits. Sometimes my wife will just kind of, it's like, you're not supposed to act that way. It's a hospital visit. You know, you're supposed to be very reverent and harump. Oh, dear sister, we are praying for you that God would help you through this surgery. I am not that guy. We cut up and we joke and we laugh. And you know what? That's just the way that I am. I'm just not that preacher that can act all reverent and ministerially. I'm not that guy, so I'm not going to pretend to be that guy. But you know what? I can honestly say and I can publicly say, I love people and I love you. And I want to be a blessing, and I want to, uh, to be used of God, to have a Christ-like spirit. A pastor needs to be given to hospitality. It's not a checklist. It's something that when you love people, you just want to care for them and take care of them. And that's what hospitality truly is. It says here in the last phrase in verse number two that he is apt to teach, being apt means that he's fit and suitable. He can communicate and make it understandable and applicable. Doesn't always mean that it's entertaining. You know what, folks? I I believe this with all of my heart, and I've observed this. You know, there are pastors that are very dry, that don't have a whole lot of personality, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm in that category. And that's okay. We are who we are, right? But you know what? If you are communicating to people with a genuine heart of love and you're giving them the truth, they may not be entertained, but they'll be attentive. When you're speaking to them from the heart and it's the truth, the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, and the preacher is taking through the power of the Holy Spirit, giving you the word of God, it doesn't have to be entertaining. And you know what? Sometimes it can even be long. It can be long-winded. Maybe some of you have never experienced this, but you know, sometimes a preacher is like, oh, I've went overtime. And you go, and you go, I didn't even know. I didn't even, now I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you've ever done that before. Don't want, I, Preachers can be sensitive. But every now and then, it's like, you know, it didn't seem like that it was long. Why? Because you were just tuned in and you were focused. He had, the, the preacher had your attention and it was speaking to your heart. When God's speaking to your heart, you don't want it to be over. You're not watching the clock You're just feeding. You're sitting down to God's table and you're just eating God's meal. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But being apt to teach means that he has the wits and the the suitability to communicate. Do you know back in Spurgeon's days, and he had a chapter on the preacher's voice and C.H. Spurgeon was adamant in this. He said, if you don't have the voice of a preacher, then God didn't call you to preach. 
Now, we had a, uh, there's a preacher from up in the Elkin area that uh, Brother Wayne brought to the, the men's uh, prayer breakfast. And I, I said, would you lead us in prayer? And he had, and he started praying and he sounded like that long black, black train guy. Uh, I don't remember his name. He kind of disappeared. You know, the long black train. You can admit it. You all know about that. And he had that bass voice. And I go, man, I hate you. Man, you could, you wouldn't even have to, you wouldn't even have to know the Bible. You start talking with that voice, the place is going to be packed. (laughs) But I thought, man, I'm envious of that voice. Back in Spurgeon's day, if you didn't have that strong voice, then Spurgeon said, you're not called to preach because you're not equipped to preach. Well, thank God we have microphones and speakers now. Uh, Spurgeon would not think that I was called to preach. I know he wouldn't. I read his chapter on that. And I'm like, well, I don't know about you, Brother Spurgeon, but I'm pretty sure that God's called me to preach, at least in this day and age. And yet I know that preaching in open air to a large congregation. I don't have that voice that's going to carry. I Listen, I'm all for street preaching. I don't do much of it because I don't have the voice that carries. And for me to try to get you to hear my voice unamplified from here to that back wall, it just sounds like I'm screaming at you like a girl. Not the most effective way. <laughs> But the bottom line is he has to be apt to teach. How many preachers in our region are filling pulpits on a weekly basis and they don't, they don't even know how to rightly divide the Bible? They don't know the doctrines? All they know to do is to find a text and spiritualize it and give you a bunch of I'm glads. I'm not, I'm not against all of that, but a steady diet of the same thing over and over again, and you're not really getting the sense of what that verse really means, and you're just getting a spiritualization of it, it's not going to be a strength to you when you go through a trouble or a trial. You've got to have that Bible doctrine, and so the pastor needs to be apt to teach. Verse number three few more minutes and I'll let you go this evening. Verse number three, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Now, this phrase, not given to wine, while it is honest to say that this statement is, in and of itself, this statement is not necessarily clear that a minister, a preacher, should never let alcohol touch his lips. I'll, I'll give the, the, the other side of the equation, I'll give them that much space. It is also clear that, and we know this, I talked about this in Sunday school this morning, Jesus turning the water to wine. It is also clear that alcohol has taken on a totally different meaning, meaning in today's culture. In fact, alcohol is a culture in and of itself. I have no doubt in my mind, no doubt that if Jesus were alive today, seeing the culture and the associations of alcohol that we see in our culture and our generation, no doubt when he's teaching this, his words 
would be a little more drastic. In Bible days, it wasn't the issue that it is today. So given that, the bottom line, regardless, non-alcoholic wine was also used in high society festivities. I'm talking about grape juice, non-alcoholic wine. We saw it in the Sunday school lesson, the marriage in Cana of Galilee. Non-alcoholic wine or grape juice was used in those high society festivities and social events. So I believe that ministers should not be given to these either. Ministers shouldn't be trying to hobnob with all of the upper crust, upper crust social events. You, you, you see, the, some of you watch the old masterpiece classics and all of the aristocracy of England and France and all of that, and they had all of these balls and festivities and entertainments and so forth. Even if it was not alcoholic wine, the minister is not supposed to be part of that. He's not trying to be high society in his community. He's trying to be a man of God that represents God. So no matter which way you look at that wine issue, uh, it is obvious for uh, pastors that they need to not be given to that. We find also that the pastor is to be no striker. That means that he doesn't deal with conflict with physical violence. He doesn't approach problems with people with his fists. And that doesn't mean that he's not a man. Uh, you know, I, it, it's hard sometimes for a man when somebody is verbally uh, abusing you or your family. And don't you think that preachers and their families sometimes get verbally or emotionally abused? You know, some of you men out there, if somebody treated your family the way that some preachers' families get treated, I know how you'd handle it. You'd just go beat the tar out of them. And they'd stop doing it. The pastor can't do that. Why? He has a responsibility. Doesn't mean he doesn't want to do it sometimes. You say, Pastor, have you ever been, have you ever felt like doing that? That's none of your business. <laughs> That's between me and God. But this is a verse that I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. <laughs> okay? He can't, he can't handle things with his fists. He can't be a striker. He, you got to try to not even think that way, okay? That's what a pastor needs to do. It says here that he's not to be greedy of filthy lucre. Listen, he's not ministering for the money, and all he does is not with the effect of monetary gain in mind. There's all kinds of preachers that they're, they're going to be scared to preach certain things or to deal with certain problems because they're afraid that they're going to run off their, their most, the, the biggest giver in their church. You talk about a source of compromise. You talk about opening up the door to the devil. The preacher starts worrying about those finances and what he's going to gain by that. Maybe a popularity. Maybe there's a faction in the church that, hey, they've all kind of got their own little clique going on. And the pastor knows, hey, if I cross this man, then I stand that I might lose their whole little circle of influence. 
You know what? If the pastor has to compromise to keep them, I say run them out. What are we saying? What are we saying if we have to accommodate, compromise, in order to keep from losing certain people who have social status? We're respecting persons. The pastor is supposed to be consistent. And if he's not greedy of filthy lucre, it will help him pastor the church objectively. And it won't matter if somebody's a huge tither or somebody that hardly or doesn't even give at all. He's going to love them all consistently as God's people. He's going to view them as sheep in the pasture, not as a commodity for his goals and aims in the ministry. The next word, it says he's to be patient, patient. Without this quality, pastors will get their church in a lot of trouble. Dealing with problems, a pastor's got to be patient. Financial decisions, a pastor's got to be patient. Decisions that affect others, he's got to be patient. He's got to be patient in enduring problems. And listen, I know that God moves men from one ministry to another. I know that sometimes it just doesn't work out for a pastor and his family to be in one ministry. And it's just not a fit or it's not working out or something changes. And it's, it, it, it is of necessity that they move on and go and pastor another church. That happens and sometimes it's just doing the best you can with what you've got to work with. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit leading and guiding. I am not saying that God doesn't move people. But I'm telling you, what we see in churches today, the instability, Brother Ben, the average pastor stays at a church about two years. And that is sad. That's not right. That is not right. I, you know, I, my uh, former pastor in Idaho, he, he always told me, he said, Brother Mitchell, it takes five years just to get to the starting block, just to get started where you're beginning to be effective. I think that as time goes on, that that five year, that's just stretching because, listen, the ministry does not exactly project credibility in today's culture. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, Paul said, Paul said uh, that, the, uh, that the ministry be not blamed. That was important to Paul. And we got preachers acting in ways all around us in which the ministry is being blamed. Paul said, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Not only do preachers become castaways, but they put a big black mark on the ministry itself. And we're dealing in a time where ministers and even Christianity, our message, we are starting in the negative and we have to build up to that point of trust and credibility before they'll ever listen to what we have to say. And it takes time and it takes some, uh, some proving ground. Now, so the pastor, the, the bishop's supposed to be patient. And then notice here it says uh, in verse number three, wow, we're not covering ground very fast, are we? I feel like I'm talking fast. 
It says he's not a brawler. And I'm going to wrap up here because I told you I'd be done at a quarter after. I've already lied. He's not supposed to be a liar either. Not in the text, but I think that goes. Not a brawler. You say, wait a minute. It already said that he's not supposed to be a striker. Isn't that what brawling is all about? Well, no. A brawler, that's much different than a striker. The brawler often handles conflict not with his fists, but with his words. There's been a lot of... Listen, even the, the independent Baptist movement and our crowd, which we are passionate about the King James Version of the Bible, much of our crowd, the pastors have become brawlers. I'm all for apologetics. I'm all for proving that, hey, what we believe and why we believe it, it's scriptural. And I'm, and I'm not opposed to exposing heresy. Even the Apostle Paul at times would name names. It's not always wrong. But that doesn't give pastors the license to be brawlers and to constantly, like everything that they approach in the Bible is this, you know, butting heads and all they think about is what so-and-so believes and what so-and-so believes. And rather than feeding the flock the truth, all they're doing is exposing their flock to all of the ministerial conflict and debates and problems that are out there. That's what a brawler is. He handles his conflict with his words. And listen, this pulpit right here, this pulpit is not for bullying. Many pulpits are used for bullying. I'm not saying that I have never done what some preach. You know, sometimes preachers, they handle every problem in their church just by blowing it out from the pulpit. Shock and awe, just blowing it out. I am not saying there isn't a time for that. I've had to do it a time or two. But I can assure you that the only time that I've ever done that, I, I hope that I'm being accurate in my memory, is after I have tried and tried and tried to deal with the problem privately, only to find that it wasn't working. The people that are needing correction, that are misinformed, They've believed a lie. You try to fix it with the truth. You try to handle it privately and gently. Nothing doing. They are firm in their position and they're not necessarily keeping their position to themselves. There's a time that the preacher just has to get up and protect the flock and just tell it like it is. I'm not saying that that's never appropriate. But it shouldn't be very often, especially if the preacher is not dealing with the problem, eyeball to eyeball, face to face. A preacher can hide behind, a preacher can be a coward, even though he's blowing it out from the pulpit. He can say things up here in a public forum that he would never go eyeball to eyeball with you in his office and tell you what he's saying from the pulpit. Why? Because he's accountable to you. You get to, you get to interact back. You get to tell him what you think of him. And many times preachers will have a bully pulpit 
and uh, they're cowards outside the pulpit. Listen, I would rather I would rather be a little bit kind of timid behind this pulpit, but care enough about people that I'll confront you and I'll talk to you if there's a problem. If you've got a pastor that is willing, if you think that pastors love confrontation, you, you're, it's just not true. Pastors love people and they care about them and confrontation is never something that he wants. And so these are all last resorts. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure, perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. I've had times where I've got frustrated over a situation and uh, just kind of let my frustration and why won't they, why can't they see it? And sometimes it'll become personal. And sometimes you start taking it personal and then you start thinking that, you know what, I'm right. And so I've got to win this argument. I've got to win this conflict. And the Holy Spirit will remind me of these principles and say, look, it's not about you, buddy. It's about them. You're trying to help them so that they'll recover from the snare of the devil. And that's what we always, listen, all of us, we're going to have conflict from time to time. There's going to be misunderstandings. How we deal with those misunderstandings is what will make or break a local church. Do we deal with things charitably? You know, there's some stuff that we just need to, you know what, just, just let it go. Be patient. That's just them being them. I love them anyways. I'm not going to let that hurt me or wound me or offend me. But sometimes we get a wound or an offense and we can't seem to just let it go. You know what you need to do? You need to try to make it right and clarify. Make understandings right. Have unity. And then when that doesn't work, you just give it to God and you move on and you try to make the best of it. But charity means I care about you, not about winning. When we think that, hey, I'm right and so I need to win this, that's when we need to just step aside. Jesus never approached any conflict that way. It's about God's glory. Always look at your conflicts with this mindset. It's not about who's right. It's about what's right. Because you may actually be right, but you may be handling it totally wrong. So always stay focused, not on who's right, but on what's right. And just do the right thing. The last thing, the pastor is not supposed to be covetous. This is different from filthy lucre. You can be covetous of a lot of different things, people's lifestyles, people's standards of living, people's relationships and friendships, people's abilities, like preachers with really good voices. I wasn't that covetous. I was, I admired it. 
But these are the things that, many things that a pastor needs to be. We'll talk more about next week on how he rules his house. And uh, let me just whet your appetite with this. Um, the, the minister's family, no matter how you approach it, they live in a fishbowl. And I appreciate, I, I have a, a great love for preacher's kids. I was one, and I raised a couple, and I have observed the things that they go through, and it's not always easy. That fishbowl effect, it's a pressure that the devil just magnifies it, and many times you're not creating that fishbowl effect, it's just a something that goes with the territory. And while you can't always stop that fishbowl effect with the pastor's family, you need to be conscious of it and not be causing it or producing it in any way. How do you treat the pastor's family? The same way you treat your own family. The same way you treat any other brother or sister in Christ because in reality, that's all that we are. We're just a brother and sister in Christ with a calling and a responsibility but when I stamp off from this pulpit, I'm just, I'm just one of you. And there's no special, there's no caste system. The pastor is not superior in any way. He just has a calling and a responsibility that sometimes you can't always understand, but you certainly...